one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Welcome in, everybody, episode Kirk 7 Street is on the phone. 25 for the podcast. This week, the Air Tour Sports Podcast yeah. presented oh, by Betfred so Sportsbook. Awesome. It is Wednesday, June 21st, 2023. People, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day. I hope everybody is enjoying the first day of the summer. And let me just say this. For a late June First day of summer episode of the Air Taurus Pod. We have a ton to react to. Here's what you need to know about today's show. We're going to open NBA Draft. NBA Draft is here tomorrow. And I just want to kind of hit on just a couple storylines going in. Be blunt. I don't think it's the sexiest draft that we have ever had. But I do think there's a couple interesting storylines worth monitoring. I am going to give you my NBA draft superlatives. I do this all the time. Kind of go through just the, the storylines, the topics, the this, the that. From there, we will take a quick break. We'll come back. Did you see what Nick Saban said this week? So Nick Saban is maybe the greatest coach in the history of college football. He is also a major, major, major sore loser when things do not go his way. We're going to discuss some things he said this week. And then finally, we will wrap with a couple very interesting stories to end. Bob Huggins' daughter speaks out. You have to hear what she had to say. And then I'll be blunt. It is the story that I can't stop reading about. It's serious. It's sad, but we got to discuss. It's the situation with that Titanic vessel, the Titanic submarine. We're going to discuss it. I'm going to share some thoughts. You know, Torres has takes on everything. So busy show, fun show. We're going to cover a lot of ground from when Banyama to the Titanic buckle in. It's going to be a fun show. And let's not waste any more time. With that said, let's get to the topic of the day. Topic of the day. As I said, NBA draft is Thursday night. You know, and I'll be blunt, right? I'll be blunt from this perspective. Is that I don't think it is the sexiest NBA draft to talk about. And it's for a few reasons. One, we've known who's going number one since the day NBA, the last year's NBA draft finished. Victor Wimbanyama is going number one overall. There's no questions about it. Two, the rest of the guys in the draft, it's a combination of guys that either didn't play college basketball. And to be clear, I don't begrudge anybody who decides not to play college basketball. But you have Scoot Henderson from the G League Ignite program. You have the Thompson Twins from Overtime Elite. So you have a bunch of guys that didn't play college basketball. And even the guys that did play college basketball, a lot of guys that were injured that we didn't get to see at full strength. Nick Smith Jr. from Arkansas. Obviously, we discussed him with Coach Muss last week. Uh, Derek Lively from Duke. Didn't see him at full strength. Derek Whitehead got injured in the preseason, got injured in the pre-draft process, probably never saw him at full strength. Uh, Cam Whitmore, who's probably going to be a top 10 pick. Villanova started off slow without him. He comes back. Villanova isn't good. You probably didn't watch a ton of Villanova. And so I bring it up because there's just not a lot of juice in this draft. But what I will say is there are some interesting storylines. And so what I want to do is hit on them rapid fire in what I like to call NBA draft superlatives. If you've listened to this show before, we do superlatives from time to time. In other words, it's an interesting way of talking about these storylines um, in a way that maybe other people aren't right. We all had superlatives in high school. 
most likely to succeed, most likely to fail, most likely to smoke cigarettes under the bleachers, most likely to eat ice cream uh, underwater. I don't even know. I don't know what your high school did. But what I want to do, NBA draft superlatives, talk about the biggest storylines in kind of a unique way possible. Let's start with superlative number one. You know what it is. It involves Victor Wimbanyama. But this is the superlative that I want to talk about. The biggest story around the biggest story that nobody is talking about, that is this about Victor Wimbanyama. Everybody is talking about what he is capable of being. Here is my question, though. What would actually make him live up to expectations? Because to me, that's the most interesting thing. We could talk about he's the most hyped player since LeBron. I don't know if he's the most hyped in terms of interest, but I do understand the argument that if it all clicks, he could go down as one of the all-time greats. And so it's an interesting conversation because I was thinking about it. Okay, we're saying what the potential is. But what would actually be considered a success? And oh, by the way, this is all under the assumption that God willing, he's able to have a healthy career. We've talked about it. We've discussed it. He's seven foot five. History says, whether it's Yao Ming, Greg Oden, Bill Walton, whomever, history says a guy that's seven foot five is not going to have a long, lengthy, high-end career. But let's say, because I want to be glasses half full today, that it does work out and he does play a full, meaningful NBA career. The question then becomes, what would you consider to be an actual successful NBA career, which I think is actually fascinating. To me, I think we're talking about him as a potential for an all-time great. So the standards that we hold most people to, even Hall of Famers to, I don't know that they apply to him. Like if Victor Wimbanyama makes five all-star teams. I would consider that a bust. Five all-star teams sounds amazing. Guess what? Jason Tatum has already been to six all-star games in his career, okay? And he's like 25 years old. And so I bring it up. I think he's actually been to five, but you get the point. You go to five, that's nothing. You go to seven, eight, nine, that's about what we expect. Oh, by the way, there are Hall of Famers that have been the best player on a championship team. Dirk Nowitzki won a title. Chauncey Billups won a title whomever. But if he only wins one, I wonder if that's enough. Because we are starting to talk about him in all-time great parlance. All-time greats are LeBron James with four NBA titles, Kobe with five, Tim Duncan with five, uh, you know, MJ with six. And I know that we, I, I, I complain all the time about the NBA Twitter narrative of everything is judged by championships and this and that. But when we're talking about him as one of the great prospects that has ever come up in this draft, I think those are fair, fair conversations. So it's an interesting debate. It's an interesting conversation. But this guy to me, I'm fascinated to watch. I hope he reaches those expectations. But you're talking about a guy to live up to expectations, probably needs to win three, four NBA titles minimum to be in that all-time great category. Second NBA draft superlative. The second biggest story that actually I don't think is a story at all. And that's who's going to go number two. If you followed pretty much any NBA draft coverage at all, you know that the big conversation right now is who's the second best prospect in this draft and who is going to go number two to Charlotte. Is it going to be G League Ignite's Scoot Henderson, the point guard, or Brandon Miller, the wing from Alabama? 
Great debate. Everybody's into it. What are we going to do? Who's going to go where? All that good stuff. Except in my opinion, I don't think it's that much of a debate at all. I think it's Brandon Miller, and I don't think it's even a conversation. And that's no disrespect to Scoot Henderson. That's not me, oh, Torres. You're the college basketball guy, so you have to defend the college basketball player. That's not what this is at all. What this is is a simple fit situation, a simple stylistic situation, and a simple this is where the NBA is going situation. For the big debate that this is, the bottom line is Charlotte has the number two overall pick, and we know that Charlotte, their entire organization, is built around LaMelo Ball. LaMelo Ball, point guard, guy that needs the ball in his hands, guy that wants to get others involved, that's exactly what Scoot Henderson's game is. Meanwhile, Brandon Miller plays off the ball. Brandon Miller is a wing. Brandon Miller shoots threes. This is the kind of guy that you want to surround Mellow Ball with. Spacing, three-point shooting, athleticism, slashing. Not another guy that needs the ball in his hands to have success. So it's not a knock on Scoot Henderson. It's just reality. But then two, beyond that, it's also where the NBA is going. Because all I ever hear about with the NBA is that everybody wants three and D wings. Are you 6'7", 6'8", 6'9", can handle the ball, can shoot threes, can do all that? Well, Brandon Miller can. So why are we overthinking this? Especially with respect to Scoot Henderson, who's a very talented player, but what is the knock on him? Small guard, needs the ball in his hands, not a great shooter. 6'3", 6'4". Who does that sound like? Derrick Rose. Who does that sound like? John Wall. Who does that sound like? Russell Westbrook. We have seen the electric, dynamic, athletic point guard that can't shoot. It never ends well. Russell Westbrook doesn't have a team right now. John Wall might have to go overseas. Derrick Rose is a backup, tragically, after all those injuries that he dealt with. But I just bring it up because its I don't really understand what the conversation is. I don't really understand what the debate is. The second biggest topic that isn't really a debate at all, it is who's number two. I would take Brandon Miller. Next superlative. The lottery pick that I am higher on than most. That is very simple. It is Anthony Black, guard, University of Arkansas. We talked about Anthony Black a lot last week with Eric Musselman, but there's a couple of reasons why I'm higher on Anthony Black than most. One, first of all, just talking to Coach Muss, seeing how much was put on Anthony Black's plate, kind of blew me away, right? Because you hear and you see and you this and you that. Well, what ends up happening? You watch games and you see games, but to hear his coach talk about it, to hear his coach say, oh, we went to him in huddles and said, what do you see? We went to him and 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 asked him if we should be switching up pick and roll coverages, pick and roll defense on offense. Should we be running different sets? That speaks to me that a, about a player that is wise beyond his years. What's wild is something else that I talked to Eric Musselman about, and that's that. Anthony Black is, relatively speaking, pretty young from a basketball perspective. Why is that? Remember, he was a high-level football player deep into his high school career. Had offers from Baylor, Colorado, TCU. He could have played Division I football, and it wasn't until his senior year that he decided to focus solely on basketball. So why is that important? It's because from a basketball perspective, he's still a very young, young, young guy. And so that is why, in my opinion, I think the seal, you know, to quote Michael Jordan, the ceiling is the roof for Anthony Black. He's going to be really good because he's just now scratching the surface of his potential. And number three, you know, I talked about this with Zach Curl a few weeks ago on his podcast. 
is that the size that Anthony Black has, and it's something that I've realized throughout recently watching basketball, is that, like, I think we all kind of understand, like, to use the lack of a better term, size matters, right? But watching basketball these last six months, I mean, think about the teams that are having success at the highest level. Denver Nuggets won an NBA title. Jokic, seven feet. Michael Porter, 6'10". Aaron Gordon, 6'8", 6'9". Jamal Murray, 6'5", 6'6". It's a big team. UConn that won the national championship. Adama Sanogo. Andre Jackson, 6'8", 6'9", can play the wing. Jordan Hawkins, 6'5", 6'6". Their point guard, Tristan Newton, was 6'5", 6'6". So now you bring in Anthony Black, smart, just starting to figure out basketball, 6'8", 6'9". I love him. I would take him ahead of everybody else. Let's get to the lottery pick that I don't really understand the hype on. That's Jairus Walker from Houston, okay? And so I'll just say this. Jairus Walker's kind of the opposite of what I said about Anthony Black and what I said about Brandon Miller. He kind of runs counter to everything the NBA is and is going to be. Six foot ten forward, played at Houston, and he's kind of an old school back to the basket big. Now he shot a reasonable percentage from three at Houston this year. He did shoot 33%, 34% as a three-point shooter. But at the same time, he's six foot ten. When you look even at that three-point percentage, it's not as though he shot a ton of threes. He shot about two, two and a half per game. And on top of that, he's not super athletic and he's not an elite rim protector. So let's talk about the NBA right now, because I hear guys like Oscar Shibway, Adama Sonogo, Drew Timmy cannot play in the NBA because they're not elite rim protectors, not elite three-point shooters, can't play in space. I think Jairus Walker is a better athlete than those guys. I think Jairus Walker has an elite wingspan for a guy his size. But I mean, we're talking about him as a top five pick and basically saying like, oh, we just hope he plays really good defense because the offense probably is never going to get there. So I don't get Jairus Walker. I have never really gotten Jairus Walker as a lottery pick. I think sometimes there are just guys that get labeled a lottery pick and nobody ever really does the homework to kind of explain why. Jairus Walker is the guy to me I don't get. And I'll be honest, if there was a guy on draft night that I could see falling, it'd be Jairus Walker. Let's get to the non-lottery pick that I think I like more than everybody else. And it's starting to become a little bit trendy, so I don't even know if I like him more than anybody else, but it's Nick Smith Jr., okay? Nick Smith Jr. was, of course, as I've mentioned many times, was the number one high school player in America last year for Arkansas. Barely played at Arkansas, was playing well on the summer tour, gets hurt, comes back, gets hurt again, and then comes back late in the year when all of the roles were established and all that stuff. And so when it comes to Nick Smith, I'm just betting on the talent. I'm betting on the number one prospect in America, the dude that is 6'7", 6'8", you know, he's not that big, 6'5", whatever, but can three-level scorer, can put the ball on the floor, can get past you, can hit threes, is an elite defender. In a lot of ways, you know what this reminds me of? And they're different players, so I'm not comparing them as players. But if you go back to the 20, I guess it was 17 NBA draft, Michael Porter Jr. had been the number one high school player in America. Then he goes to Missouri. He gets hurt, barely plays, comes back for the SEC tournament and the NCAA tournament, struggles, and on draft night falls to number 13 overall. Well, what just happened in the NBA playoffs? Michael Porter Jr. was a key piece to Denver's success, Denver's NBA title. And so to me, I think Nick Smith has some of that. Bet on the upside, bet on the talent. I'll bet on Nick Smith. I think he's going to be really good. 
Other player that I'm higher on than most, and, and, and this one, I'll be honest, I don't get this one at all. This was a guy that I thought was a consensus top 10 pick, no doubt about it. And as the draft process has gone on, people have just kind of been out on him. That is Kentucky's case in Wallace. I don't get this one at all, okay? So when I look at Case and Wallace and I look at what he did at Kentucky, first of all, as a freshman in the SEC, like Anthony Black, the ball was eventually put in his hands. And he was basically asked to go be the distributor, go be the playmaker, go be the best player on the floor, go get your buckets, go get other people involved, all of that. And he finished averaging 12 points per game, four and a half assists per game, and close to two steals per game. And that, by the way, was only playing half the season at point guard. First half of the season, Severe Wheeler was your point guard. Severe Wheeler was the guy that everything ran through. And so you look at that whole situation and you sit there and say, wait a second now, if John Calipari from day one had just said, Kaysen, here's the ball, go make plays, what would he have averaged? I think it would have been closer to like 14, 15 points per game, five, five and a half assists, two, two and a half steals. And so he did that in basically half of a season. He was great when healthy. And as the steel total will tell you, he's an elite on the ball defender. Don't get the case in wall stuff. I'm seeing him anywhere from like 12 to 20. I think this is a top 10 prospect in this draft. And I do think it's kind of a case of sometimes being hidden, you know, you know, being out in the open, I think can hurt a guy like a case in walls. He was on national TV 40 times. We all watch Kentucky games. If he had just gone to overtime elite or G League Ignite, would it be different? I don't know, but I think it's worth considering. Really quickly, a couple other players I like. One, Jordan Hawkins, UConn, best shooter in the draft, no doubt about it. Uh, Jalen Hood Shafino from Indiana, I really like a lot. On the ball, playmaker, shot creator, shot maker. Jalen Hood Shafino, to me, is a guy that really impressed me during the college season and just a guy that I like overall. And then finally, because the segment's going a little bit long, my final NBA draft thought, the most interesting part of the NBA draft is, it is, the most interesting part of the NBA draft is, is Zion Williamson going to get traded? And let me say this. Sometimes guys and girls that do what I do, give out opinions, they kind of toe the line and I can see, and, and I do that from time to time. I'll readily admit it. This is one I actually have a strong opinion on. I think the Pelicans should absolutely, positively, be trying to trade Zion Williamson, if at all possible, and let me explain why. One, I mean, I'll just give you the, the, the Zion resume. Let's just go through the Zion resume right now. First of all, reason number one, I'd be willing to trade him. He has shown zero interest in actually playing through any level of injury. I go back to that play-in game late in the season. I believe they were playing Oklahoma City. New Orleans season is on the line. Comes down to one game. It's in late April. He hasn't played since January because of his hamstring. Cleared by the doctors. And do you remember what Zion said? Well, when I get back to Zion feeling like Zion, then I'll be out there. That drove me freaking insane. And people said, oh, he's out of shape. Oh, he's this. Oh, he's... I don't care if you're out of shape. Your season is on the line. You're the highest paid player on the team. You're making tens of millions of dollars. You mean to tell me you can't try and give me 10 minutes? eight minutes, 15 minutes in a do or die, go home game. And don't tell me you're out of shape and don't tell me you're injured. It's a hamstring injury. If you re-aggravate it, you have all off season to, 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 to get better. This isn't an Achilles. It isn't a knee. You can't give me 10 minutes, Zion. 
I'm so over this guy. Two, here's the other thing that's worth discussing. It was clear by the end that his teammates had given up on him. If you remember, C.J. McCollum, after that loss in the playoffs, veteran leader, been there, playing through pain. C.J. McCollum had to have surgery after the season on his hand. He went to the podium and said something to the effect of, we need all of our guys ready to go at all times. And that was a shot at Zion. It was obviously a shot at Zion to a smaller degree, Brandon Ingram. And so your your veteran leaders don't believe in this guy. He hasn't shown any willingness to play through any type of injury, can't stay healthy, can't stay on the court. He's missed more than half the game since he came to the NBA. Now he's got personal issues, and I'm not even going to get into those because we have families that listen to this show. We have moms and dads that listen in the car with their children, but you can, with their children, excuse me, but you can Google all that stuff. And finally, We've seen some some serious reports that, you know, he has no relationship with the organization outside of of, you know, the facility. He doesn't communicate, he doesn't talk, he's not helpful. I'm sorry, man. I love Zion at Duke. I thought he was a great story. I thought he was fun. I thought he was awesome. I think he's dead wrong on all this. I think he's a bust right now in the NBA plain and simple. Um, and by the way, this all stems from the fact that there have been multiple reports, Brian Winhorst, Mark Stein, veteran NBA reporters that say that there is real interest from the Pelicans in trading Zion Williamson. I wouldn't hesitate. I would trade him. I just want to do take a quick break, come back. And when I come back, did you see what Nick Saban said? Nick Saban being Nick Saban, kind of whining. I'm kind of over it. We're going to take a quick break. Discuss that next. All right, we'll get back to the show in a minute, but before we do, I want to welcome back our presenting sponsor, Betfred Sportsbook in the Betfred Sportsbook app. The NBA playoffs are here and nobody has you covered quite like Betfred. By now, you know Betfred's story. Started in 1967 in the UK, over 1,200 shops in the UK. They have since come to the United States and made a major splash. They are not only the presenting sponsor of the Aaron Torres podcast and all things Aaron Torres media, but also the Cincinnati Bengals, the Colorado Rockies, the Denver Broncos. And what I love about Betfred Sportsbook is that nobody takes care of their customers quite like Betfred. You've seen the Betfred Sportsbook suite at Bengals games. It is hopping. We have sent listeners of this show to Denver Broncos VIP tailgates. Betfred betters have thrown out first pitches at Colorado Rockies games. Again, nobody takes care of you like Betfred Sportsbook does. And here is what they are doing for the NBA playoffs. How about this for a deal? Bet $50 on any game, all playoffs long, get up to $1,111 in free bets. Here's how it works. Download the Betfred Sportsbook app, bet $50 on any game. You automatically get $111 in free bets. But beyond that, here is what else Betfred does for you. They're going to give you up to $200 in insurance for the first five weeks that you're a Betfred customer. So, Maybe you make a bad pick. We all do. We've all been there. Trust me. You followed my picks in March Madness. It happens. So you bet 200. Doesn't work out. Get 200 insurance for the first five weeks that you are a Betfred customer, equating up to $1,111 in free bets thanks to Betfred. Again, nobody takes care of you like Betfred does. Love working with them. They are the presenting sponsor of the Aaron Torres pod. Tell them Torres sent you. Download the Betfred Sportsbook app right now. All right, everybody. I'm back. 
Good to be back. Good to be back. Do want to switch gears, and I actually want to talk a little bit of college football. So it's been a quiet few weeks in the world of college football. Um, but what I would say, college football is coming, man. We're about three, three and a half weeks away from SEC media days. Um, and then from there, it's obviously going to be go time. We're going to get into fall camp stuff, into preseason stuff, into game stuff. And before you know it, it's going to be October 11th, and, and we're going to be wondering where the whole season went. But I bring it up because we actually got a little piece of news this week from, frankly, the the, the, the loudest, most important voice in college football. That voice is Nick Saban. Had something very interesting to say about the college football playoff, um, but also something that I would argue kind of made him look a little bit petty and a little bit of a sore loser going forward. So I want to share that. I want to share some context behind the quotes. But first, let me say this. I generally think that Nick Saban is good for college football. I generally think that when he says, is this what we want college football to be? 99% of the time, he really does care about the health of the sport. But again, this week he said something that I just vehemently think that was just sad and and kind of lame on, on Nick Saban's behalf. So let's get into the quotes. And before we do, a little bit of context behind what he said. If you remember last year, Really, the quotes from Monday really go back to last year. And if you remember last year, last year was was by Alabama standards, quite frankly, a little bit of a disappointing season. Go back to last season, Alabama preseason number one team, reigning Heisman Trophy winner Bryce Young. Many, including myself, thought it had a chance to be one of the great Alabama teams of all time. Instead, they lose at Tennessee, they lose at LSU, and finish the regular season at 10-2 and overall. Going into the final weekend, they weren't even part of championship weekend as LSU won the SEC West. Um, And as the playoff picture started to unfold with the four-team playoff last winter and last fall, if you remember, there were really five teams for the four spots in the college football playoff. Georgia was a lot going into the final, final weekend, and then, of course, they won the SEC championship game and got the number one overall seat. Michigan was a lock after they beat Ohio State in the final week of the regular season. They win the Big Ten Championship. They get the number two seed. Why I bring it up? The final two spots went down to three teams. One was TCU, which if you remember, went into the Big 12 Championship game undefeated, then lost in the Big 12 Championship game. Then you had Ohio State, which was 11-1, but lost the biggest game of their season at home to Michigan. And then you had Alabama, On the outside, at probably number five in that equation, it ended up certainly being number five at 10 and two overall. Yet on that final night, it was very interesting because Nick Saban went on TV that night and essentially, you know, did what he's supposed to do as the head coach. I'm not going to criticize him for this, but but he went on the Big Ten uh, championship game broadcast and and, and Gus Johnson and Joel Klatt kind of asked him like, Hey, do you guys think you should be one of the four best teams? Do you think you deserve to be in this college football playoff? And Nick Saban gave kind of a wild answer to that question. If you remember, Nick Saban starts kind of going through and he says, well, you know, let me tell you this. Uh, If we just went by Vegas odds, we would be favored by over this team and we would be favored over that team. And we need to be in because if you just go by the odds, we would be favored against anybody. We're one of the four best teams. We just don't have the record to prove it. And I remember at the time thinking like, whoa, whoa, like like Vegas, Nikki, Nikki parlays over here. When did Nick Saban go from the greatest coach in the history of college football, never having to worry on championship weekend to all of a sudden now he's a bookmaker in Vegas. What? 
Sharp Nikki, Nikki Vegas, Vic, you know, Nikki parlays. All of a sudden, all he cares about is, is Vegas odds. I was blown away and could not believe that that was his explanation for why Alabama should be in the college football playoff. I bring it up because essentially he brought up that same point this week with Joel Klatt. And this was the piece of news that I found fascinating. And I found honestly kind of lame from Nick Saban. So Nick Saban went on Joel Klatt's podcast, by the way, shout out Joel Klatt. He actually came on this podcast once upon a time, many years ago. I think it was like episode four. We're on episode seven, whatever. Uh, But Joel Klatt came on at one point, but I bring it up because Joel Klatt kind of asked Nick Saban kind of about the future of the college football playoff. How should it be determined? All that good stuff. And here was what Nick Saban had to say about the college football playoff as it expands to 12 teams. He said, all we do is take the teams that win the most games at the end of the year and put them in the playoffs. But do we really get the best teams? When they told me that we would be favored against three out of the four teams that got into the playoff last year, I'm like, why aren't we in the playoffs? If you're going to have parity, you have to have a better way of figuring out who has the best teams, not just because you lose two games on the last play of the game. And so let me start by saying this. I actually agree with Nick Saban's fundamental point. As we go to a 12-team playoff, just like in the 14 playoff, just like, by the way, in the two-team BCS era, I agree. It can't just be about win-loss record, right? You know, if if Coastal Carolina finishes 11-1 and in that 12-team playoff era and somehow doesn't get an automatic bid, remember there's going to be six automatic bids and six at-large bids, just because Coastal Carolina finishes 11 and 1 and LSU finishes 9 and 3 or Tennessee finishes 10 and 2 doesn't mean that Coastal Carolina needs to be in or is a better team. So fundamentally, I do agree with Nick Saban. But at the same time, what I will also say is this Nick Saban, still from last year, being caught up on point spreads and we would have been favored and this and that, it is sad. It is pathetic, and I'll just say this. I love Nick Saban, but I think he is dead, dead, dead wrong on this particular topic. Let me explain why. First of all, Nick Saban, for now, obviously, eight, nine months, has been on this whole, we deserve to be in because we're favored, and we lost two games on the final possession of the game. Okay, Nick Saban, you're not necessarily wrong on that. Your two losses were to LSU and Tennessee on the final play of the game. And it sucked. And it doesn't mean you had a bad season. Doesn't mean your players are terrible. It doesn't mean anything like that. But to imply that it definitively makes you one of the four best teams because you lost two games on the final play of the game. Let me ask you this. Coach Saban, I'm talking to you, buddy. I'm here for you. Am I the only one that remembers what happened in the other 10 regular season games? Because it'd be one thing if you lose on the final play of the game to LSU and Tennessee, and you beat everybody else by 40. Just one problem. Coach Saban, I actually watched the games, and this is what I remember. I remember you having three other games that you actually won on the final possession of the game. There was at Texas. Remember that game? Bryce Young pulling you-know-what out of you-know-where. Miracle play after miracle play sets up a field goal, and you survive at Texas? Because I remember that one. How about the final play at Texas A&M, against Texas A&M at home? Texas A&M drives the length of the field. Haynes King rolls to his right, throws to the corner of the end zone. It's batted down. Your defense played it perfectly. Credit to your team. 
but you won that game on the final play of the game. And then, oh, by the way, Ole Miss, there was a goal line stand in the final 30 seconds for you to survive in Oxford. And so for Nick Saban to imply that, well, I mean, come on, we were one of the four best teams, Vegas odds. We lost two games on the final play of the game. You did. You also won three games on the final possession of the game as well. So just as easily as you could have been 12-0 and instead of 10-2, and you also could have been 8-4 and or even 7-5 and last year. Beyond that, Coach Saban, and I love you, Coach Saban, but you're just you're so wrong on this. Beyond that, here's the other thing that needs to be considered. One, I think Vegas odds are really important, but if you're going to imply, well, I mean, we would have been favored over three or four teams. Well, don't results have to matter? Because if we just went off Vegas odds, then why are we even playing games? Let's just name Georgia the national champion now. Oh, I know why we don't do that. It's because of the whole reason that we love college football. It's because of the reason that 100 plus thousand fans show up to watch your team every time they take the field at Bryant-Denny Stadium. It's why we have 10, 12, 15 million people watching big-time college football games. It's because we always tune in because we never know what's going to happen. It's because we never know what's going to happen. And think about, well, we just need to go off, off gambling odds. Okay. Well, guess what happens if that's the case? Then again, first of all, let's just not even play the season. But then two, beyond that, TCU doesn't upset Michigan in the playoff. We don't get Georgia and TCU for a national championship. But we can't. Why did TCU and Michigan even play? Because the odds would say that TCU had no chance. Oh, by the way, Michigan shouldn't have even been there because Ohio State was favored against Michigan. Oh, by the way, Alabama was favored at LSU by close to two touchdowns. So don't tell me it's all about Vegas odds. The whole point. The reason we play sports, the reason we love sports is because you never know what is going to happen. And that's what makes it so fascinating. And finally, I kind of just go back to this last point, the point that I just made a minute ago, which is that like, look, I I love watching Alabama football. I mean, you, you can't talk college football without Alabama, but I do think it, I'll even, I'll even give coach Saban a little bit of credit. If you want to argue that Vegas odds should even play a role in how we rank teams, how we determine teams, all that good stuff, that's fine. But it should be only a part of how we judge teams. Because at the end of the day, here's my thing. If Nick Saban says, well, the Vegas odds say we're one of the the two best teams in college football, that's fine. But there was no actual tangible piece of data from on the field last year that actually proves that you were one of those best teams. You know how I know? Because again, I watched the games. You weren't the best team. You didn't have the best record. You didn't win your conference. You didn't even win your division. And by the way, you lost the two biggest games on your schedule. So if the argument is we're have to judge based on who is the best teams, there was no tangible piece of data outside of Vegas odds that said that you were one of the two best teams. Oh, by the way, if you want to talk about losses on the final play of the game, TCU lost their only game of the regular season or the only game of their season on the final play of the game before the playoff as well. So you go through every piece of actual on-the-field data. I'm sorry, Coach Saban. I have zero sympathy for you. I respect Coach Saban. I like Nick Saban, but he is just dead wrong on this. But what I'll also say, very briefly before we wrap this segment, is kind of there is an interesting twist to this is that one of the reasons 
that I was not in favor of expansion of the college football playoff. I thought four was fine. I don't think we're leaving out teams that are good enough to win the national championship, depending on what you feel about Nick Saban's comments. That Alabama team from last year is the perfect example of actually why I'm against college football playoff expansion. It's because guess what? In a 12-team era, Nick Saban's going to get his wish. That team that underachieved all year, that lost twice to the two best teams on the schedule, that could have lost three more games, they're going to make the college football playoff in a 12-team era. And all that stuff from the regular season, 12 weeks of disappointment and underachieving, 12 weeks of not living up to expectations, it's not going to matter. And it's so funny, right? Because we hear this all the time. We hear, well, you know, could we have a, a, a Florida Atlantic? You know how Florida Atlantic made the Final Four in college basketball? Could we have a Florida Atlantic, a George Mason, a this or that, if we expand the college football playoff? I don't believe we will. You know what I do think we're going to get, though? I think we're going to get underachieving teams in the regular season that get into the playoff because there's now eight more spots available. Those are going to be the ones that go on runs. You know the, the team that's going to go on the run? It's not going to be the 11-1 Boise State team, okay? Not in football. We saw Cincinnati as an undefeated AAC champ get in the playoff. It was over on one possession against Alabama. But at the same time, you put that Alabama team in as a two-loss team a year ago, as Nick Saban said, they're going to be favored, and that's why I'm not in favor of it. Because everything that you do all year should matter, and it does matter in the current landscape of college football. Now, you can take that second loss. You can take that third loss, and ultimately, it will not matter. All right, so what I'm going to do, take a quick break, come back, and when I come back, we're going to hit on a few more stories, wrap this show, busy Wednesday show. Take a quick break. Be right back. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. So good to be back. Do want to go ahead and wrap uh, with two very interesting stories that came out uh, over the last 24 hours that like I would I just find them interesting and I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about them. One a follow-up to the Bob Huggins situation from Saturday, Sunday, and Monday's episode of the Aaron Torres pod. His daughter has spoken out, and you got to hear what he has to say. The second one we'll wrap on, it is this Titanic story. I know it's not a sports story. I know this is the Aaron Torres sports podcast, but forgive me. This story is unbelievable, and I would be remiss if I didn't quickly touch on it. Let's start with the Bob Huggins stuff. We all know the deal by now. Bob Huggins on Saturday resigned after being uh, arrested on Friday night for a DUI in Pittsburgh, resigns as the head coach of West Virginia University. That point, we haven't heard much from Bob Huggins. He releases a statement, all that good stuff. It's pretty quiet. As I record here about 9 p.m. on Wednesday or Tuesday evening into Wednesday, uh, the school hasn't made anything formal in terms of what the next step is. But that has not stopped. Bob Huggins' daughter, Jackie, from speaking out. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, did she have a lot to say. I want to read some of what Jackie had to say. Um, and just so it's clear, this is going to take a minute. She had a lot to say. I want to be fair to her, so I'm going to read as much of it as I can. She had a lot to say about the situation at West Virginia and her father being fired as the West Virginia coach. Let's start. Now that we have had some time to process, I want to be the first to say I understand the severity of what took place. I also fully understand how it potentially could have and does affect so many lives. People are human and people make mistakes. We are all guilty of that in some capacity. 
Let's spread love and healing and not hate to someone who bleeds gold and blue for all of you. Okay, good start. Perfectly normal response. Perfectly normal statement from Jackie Huggins, Bob Huggins' daughter. To Gordon Gee, who's the West Virginia school president, and your board, be better and do better. This is where it starts to get interesting. Throwing stones at glass houses is also not how to represent such a great university. Treating someone like they don't matter after they gave your whole their whole heart and soul to your university. You could have helped, but chose to turn your backs. Not only on him, on the guys, the staff, the boosters, everyone. You're the classless ones, the cowards, the backstabbers, and most of all, the hypocrites. Remember the $24 million practice facility that was not in any way funded by the university. The $17 million into your hospitals for cancer research. I can only pray you never make another mistake like you have in the past to be crucified for. But it continues and it gets better. Here is more of Jackie Huggins, Bob Huggins' daughter. Not that I need to touch on any more on what happened, but I'm going to. Because the people above don't deserve the right to hide how it really happened and the kind of people they actually are. My dad is not an alcoholic. He drinks like 90% of us do and made a mistake that cost him his job, his reputation, and his livelihood, which he didn't deserve. He told Gordon and his board that he would go to rehab for a 60-day stint to be able to stay for these guys, the guys who don't want to play for anyone else. That's how much he cares. It was refused, not even considered, 100% no without a thought. But they want to preach this society of understanding and compassion? I've not passed the bar but I'm pretty sure there are some stiff laws against this. Once a mountaineer, always a mountaineer, right? And then finally, this was a, a juicy little interesting side note. Next, the beer cans all over the car. The cans were in bags and not all were beer cans. There's a small group in Morgantown who knows my dad collects cans to recycle. Always has, always will. That's his thing. To act like he was driving around pounding beers as the media wants to portray is absolutely absurd. The society we are living in doesn't always tell the truth. Media will tell you what they want you to believe or what they want you to know. That choice, of course, is yours to buy it or not, but just know it is not always factual. It's easy to judge a person from the outside looking in. Goodness, do I have a lot of thoughts on this situation as Jackie Huggins, Bob Huggins' daughter, has now spoken out on her father's behalf. First of all, I think it's very clear and very interesting Um, she clearly has some information that we are not privy to. I think most importantly, I thought the 60 day rehab stint was very interesting. It appears as though Bob Huggins tried to argue, let me go to rehab. Let me coach this team. They came here to play for me. All of that good stuff. Find that interesting. Also find interesting. Some of the other stuff that she mentioned, raising money for cancer research, raising money for a practice facility. It's clear that she has obviously gotten both sides of this story. And one thing I will say, what she said at the end. I do think that there are times that the media portrays things in certain ways. So I'm glad that maybe her father will not speak out. Her father is kind of staying quiet. She is speaking out on what she believes her family's truth is. No problem with that at all. Two, a couple other thoughts. One, what do you say about somebody saying that he drinks like 90% of people in this world? Because I'm sorry, we read the police report the other day. Twice the legal limit, almost three times the legal limit, 0.21. She mentioned empty beer cans. Yes, there were empty beer cans in his car. The recycling is a twist. I'll be blunt. When I heard about empty beer cans, I kind of thought that might be an excuse at some point. Let this be a lesson, guys and girls. And I'm 
sort of being sarcastic, but sort of not. Don't ever drive three times the legal limit. But if you do, do not have empty beer cans in your car and then claim it's over recycling. Okay, I'm sorry. That's the truth. If you want to recycle, you want to be a good humanitarian. That's great. Do not be driving around with empty beer cans when you've been drinking. Because even if, let's just say there's a 1% of truth about what she said about him being into recycling. You can't do that when you're three times the legal limit, almost three times the legal limit. So I think there's a lot there. But really what I would just say, you know, one, I am glad that she got this out and told her version of the truth. Bob Huggins, I don't believe is ever going to coach basketball again. If this gives her peace, then I have no problem with it. I guess what I would also say is that as I read that, you know, what really struck me was what I often say on this show. And what I say is in life, two things that can, that seemingly don't seem to both make sense or both be true can be in life. More than one thing can be true. And I think this is a great example of that because on the one hand, I do think her sentiment about players and people caring about Bob Huggins That can be true. It can be true that in his core, at the bottom of his heart, he's a good guy. I've never met Bob Huggins. I don't really know him. I've only been in press conferences with him. He yelled at me one time. I'm not going to lie. It was pretty darn intimidating. I asked him a question he didn't like. He kind of gave me that look. For those of you who have never been in a building with Bob Huggins, he's about 6'5", 6'6". He's a big boy. Um, And so I guess what I would say is I, I got off subject there. I don't know Bob Huggins, but... Everyone who knows him says he's a good guy. His heart's in the right place. I don't doubt that, by the way. If you read some of the tributes to him when he resigned, Frank Martin tweeted about crying in his car and the role that Bob Huggins played in his life. Kirk Creesa, a transfer from Arizona, tweeted out this. I'm going to read it verbatim. He said, man, I knew the dude three months, but it felt like forever. So thankful for really believing in me and taking me in as part of your family. Love you, coach. So I do think there is an element of truth to he's probably a really good guy. The people that know him swear by him. John Calipari swears by him. Bill Self swears by him. Most people in the coaching community swear by him. Frank Martin, as I just said. Andy Kennedy is former assistant. I don't doubt that he's a good guy. And I don't doubt this either. That he truly loves West Virginia University and he truly loves the state of West Virginia. His daughter talks about the cancer research. That money comes from what he used to do, the Bob Huggins fish fry every year. Puts together an event, sells tickets, all the proceeds go to cancer. I know there were bonuses in his contract that he would get, I think it was like $100,000 if he beat Kansas or something like that. Or maybe it was 50 or maybe it was 25, whatever. But that money, when he would win those games, would be donated to cancer research. So I don't doubt that he's a good guy. I also would say respectfully to his daughter, he had to go, man. He had to go. And, and and I'm not here to speculate. She says he's not an alcoholic, whatever. I'm not here to speculate. What I am here to say is this. We went through the report. We went through the details, all that good stuff. Three times the legal limit basically was the blood alcohol level. More than twice, not quite three times. If you remember what we talked about on Monday, this was a guy who did not know what city he was in. He thought he was in Columbus, Ohio. He was in Pittsburgh, could not explain why he was in Pittsburgh, could not explain why he had a flat tire, did have empty beer cans in the car, by the way. Um, It was interesting in the police report. He referenced, I just stopped at Burger King or something to that effect. 
The receipt showed that he stopped at Burger King about eight hours before. So he has hours of his day that cannot be accounted for. Um, And this all stemmed after the first situation earlier this spring when he made the inappropriate comment on radio. And so you are already on a zero tolerance policy. I'm sorry. I hope Bob Huggins, maybe he isn't an alcoholic. Maybe this was a one-off bad deal. And maybe he doesn't need help. But he couldn't continue as the West Virginia basketball coach. And especially, by the way, guys and girls, you know the deal. When you screw up, whether it's at work, with your wife, with your kids, whatever, and they give you a second chance, you're on thin ice. You have to be perfect. And after what happened a few months ago, couldn't have this. Sorry that Bob Huggins ended this way. Wild comments by his daughter. Um, But I think the school ultimately made the right decision, even though these are some crazy, crazy, crazy comments. Really quickly, you want to talk about crazy. So we try to stick to sports on this show. And one thing I'll never do, I never talk like politics unless it's like sports related, like when they were trying to cancel college football. I try not to talk politics on this show, okay? But sometimes there is a pop culture story, a pop culture situation that is so interesting that I can't not talk about it. And that is what I want to talk about now. It is this crazy Titanic story that is going on right now. Now, again, I'm recording about nine o'clock Eastern time on Tuesday night. And I hope that by the time you guys and girls listen, there is some sort of incredible resolution to this story. But for people who have not been following, there is a company, I guess based out of the U.S., that runs tours to the site of the Titanic at the bottom of the ocean, over two miles into the ocean. That is where the Titanic ended up landing, the remains of the Titanic. And there is a tour company in the U.S. that runs basically, what would you call it, expeditions out there, I guess. They're in these tiny vessels that only hold five people. It's basically three tourists, a tour guide, and a pilot that goes down there. Um, And on, I guess it was over the weekend, one of them just disappeared. And it, it's a wild story. And and and, and I, I, I saw the story. I read it. I was shocked. But then I spent some time on Tuesday, like really digging into it. It is one of the wildest stories that I've ever seen. And I don't want to be crass and I don't want to be disrespectful and I don't want to be any of that because there are people whose lives are, are, are very much on the line. But I can't believe this. And I'll just be blunt. I can't stop reading about this. couple thoughts on this. First of all, I get that everybody's into different things and risk taking and this and that. Let me just say this. I And I'd be curious for your guys and girls response. I think I said it earlier. You can always email me at Aaron Torres podcast, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. Is this something you would do? Because I'll be blunt. There is no amount. You couldn't pay. Forget me paying 250 K. And by the way, if you're wealthy, whatever you want to spend money on, I got no problems. Okay. I'm able to, I do things. I go on vacations that other people would think are crazy. So if somebody has 250 K to go see the ruins of the Titanic, God bless them. If it's what you want to do, then that's fine. I just know I'm at the point in my life, you couldn't pay me. If you offered me a check for $250,000, if you offered me a check for a million dollars, I'd just say thanks, but no thanks. I'm at that point in my life. I'm just cutting stuff out. There's stuff that if I never do it again, I'm okay. I'll give you an example. 
was just in Vegas a few days ago for a, a, a guy's trip. Fun trip, great trip, whatever. I've just decided at this point in my life, I'm not drinking tequila anymore. I don't like the smell. I don't like the taste. I don't like the after effect. I don't like the hangovers. I don't like anything. So I don't care if it's my birthday. I don't care if it's your birthday. I don't care if it's even mixed in a margarita. I just don't want to drink it anymore. Now, I take that back. Maybe a margarita. I might have a sip. I might have a margarita or two. I ain't taking tequila shots. I'm just not doing it. And it's the same with this. I don't care how cool it is. I don't care how many people can say they've been to the ruins of the Titanic. I just, I'm not, I'm not doing it. I don't care how much, not doing it. And by the way, it seems like most of you agree with me. I put out a poll on uh, on Twitter and I said, independent of what we learned this week, I said, is this something that you would have considered doing before the news of this week? Several hundred votes and like 88% of you said, I wouldn't do this. And I'm sorry, I just wouldn't do it. Two miles under the ocean? Do you understand how deep two miles under the ocean is? I have a policy when I go on vacation and I'm, I'm, I love to swim. I love to be in the water. I'm one of those people. I can go on vacation and just sit on the beach for like 14 straight hours. Okay. I bring it up. I have a policy. When I go into the ocean, home of sharks, home of fish that we haven't discovered, home of whales, apparently killer whales are now killing people. I have a policy. If my toes can't touch the, the sand, that's deep enough for me. I ain't going anywhere where my toes can't touch the sand because I don't know what's swimming underneath. So now you're going to ask me to go two miles into the ocean? No, thank you. Take pictures. If you want to go, God bless you. I can't do it, and I never would. And that's on top of if you guys and girls do some research or, or do some homework when you're sitting at your desk today in the office, I'll tell you, man, I was doing some digging. It's th This to do it is so crazy. So first of all, it's this tiny little thing. It's the size of a minivan. Um, and again, they have oxygen for about four days, so I'm hopeful that they somehow get found. But I bring it up because you do some research on this. First of all, the whole thing is controlled by a, a thing that looks like basically like a Sega Genesis remote control. That was weird. Um, the other thing is like the, 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 the amount of things that can go wrong at that level of the ocean it doesn't, it, it takes one loose screw for the whole, for the whole thing to whatever you, you get the point. And I'd also say like, if I was going to sign up for something like this, you got to do your homework beforehand because I saw, I guess CBS uh, news tried to do like uh, something like that. Um, they tried to do uh, some sort of whatever. And I will just sit there and tell you, they did a preview of this. And apparently while they were shooting a CBS news special about this expedition, one of the vessels actually got lost during the during the taping of CBS News. I'm sorry. I wish everybody very well there. Again, there's five people whose lives might be on the line, but it's a scary, scary, scary deal, man. And I'm telling you, there is no amount of money you could pay me to do that. I don't know where you guys and girls stand. You could not pay me to do that. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. We covered a lot of ground today. Uh, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, this is the kind of stuff that you're missing out on. So make sure to subscribe, Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure to subscribe. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. 
I'll be back on Friday. We will recap the NBA draft, and then we'll go from there. Hope everybody has a great Thursday. Hope everybody has a great Wednesday. Obviously, hope everybody on that Titanic expedition ends up okay. Time for me to go. Time for me to get out of here. Let's do it. Shout out to Torn Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout out to my son, JJ, you Reddick, you F-head. Unblock me, bro. I'll be back Friday. New episode, Aaron Torres.